0: Hey, it's Jesse Dukes, Curious City Audio producer. Those of us lucky enough to be able to work from home have been doing a lot of that during the COVID pandemic, and if you're like me, maybe that's led you to get to know your home a little better. My house is over a century old, and spending so much time at home, I've discovered hidden nooks and crannies and defunct plumbing fixtures, old walls now covered up. All signs that different people have adapted the building to suit their needs in different eras. And that's what this Curious City episode is all about. We are revisiting a story from 2017 when Jen Mason Garb set out to answer questions about odd details in people's living space. And later, we'll hear from a drama teacher dealing with the challenges and occasional joys of teaching remotely. It's so typical 2020 where it's like,
1: what's that? You have plans? What's that? You want aspirations to do something?
0: Here's this pandemic. But first, here's Jen Mason-Garb, who was at the time Director of Interpretation and Research at the Chicago Architecture Center.
2: If you've ever lived in a historic apartment building, you've probably discovered a quirky feature clearly left over from another era. A mystery closet that contains a window, adjacent doors that just don't seem to go anywhere. But have you ever wondered about what those odd mystery spaces can tell us about who lived there before you? And what was life like at the time? Our question askers have been wondering the same thing.
3: I'm Biz, I'm
2: a artist.
3: So my name is Tyler and I'm an illustrator.
2: We met at art school. Yeah. Biz Knapp and Tyler Nickel live in a 1927, eight-story brick apartment building in East Rogers Park.
3: Yep, this is us. Okay. (laughs) So
2: it's just teeny. And when Biz and Tyler moved into their two-room apartment, they discovered this odd closet in an odd location. They've wondered about this mystery for years.
3: So it's in the middle of the room. It's really narrow. It's maybe like a foot deep. Like, I don't even know if you could fit like winter coats or something in here because it really is very narrow. And then there's shelving built in. You can lock it.
2: From historic apartment images from this era, I had a pretty good idea about what their mystery closet was used for. But I was curious to know what they thought. (sighs) What do you think it was?
3: Well, I thought maybe a Murphy
2: bed. Or, you know, like a dressing room or a bar. This was indeed a Murphy bed. Oh, what? Yeah. You may have seen a Murphy bed in an old Charlie Chaplin or Marx Brothers film. The bed pulls down from the wall, and when you're not using it, it just folds up into the wall, hidden by doors. And as it turns out, Biz and Tyler's home isn't a typical Chicago apartment. Their eight-story brick building was actually constructed as a residential hotel the Hotel Sherwin, a completely new kind of housing in the 1920s. They were called hotels, but they were something more like college dorms for anyone, often with laundry and linen services and evening meals. You rented a tiny apartment off a long central hallway. If you've ever been in a low-rise brick apartment building with a large lobby and small apartments, it probably was a residential hotel, especially if it was near the lakefront on the city's north side. I show Biz a 1928 article and photos from the Hotel World magazine. Uh, Apartment hotel
3: design hints on planning the modern apartment hotel, the concealed bed a vital factor. Right. (laughs) Living room in modern two-room apartment, same room as shown above. Ten seconds later, a bedroom. (laughs) So cute.
2: (laughs) And here's what drew me to this question. This isn't just a story about a bed. The former Murphy bed closet is an architectural clue. It shows us that the ways that we live have changed because of economics and changing cultural norms. Today, if you live in a studio apartment, you'd think nothing of having friends or guests see where you slept or even sit on your bed. But in the 1920s, especially to someone of the opposite sex, scandalous. Biz and Tyler's tiny kitchenette also once had a door to hide it because, at the time, cooking was still considered unsightly, dirty, and a little low-class. It's just six feet long, with a fridge, a stove, a sink, and not one inch of counter space. In a residential hotel, you didn't really need a full kitchen because you probably ate lunch in the cafeteria at work, and higher-end hotel apartments served an evening meal. This encouraged socializing among the people who lived there, a new kind of demographic. In the 1920s, Chicago had a huge population boom of both immigrants and rural migrants. And large numbers of singles and couples were moving to Chicago in search of white-collar jobs. The residential hotel was for them.
1: It was serving a lot of people who just happened to whether for economic circumstances or lifestyle choice, just fell outside of the traditional family unit.
2: This is Emily Ramsey, a local architectural historian.
1: A lot of uh, young professionals who didn't have children, who wanted a good location in the city, wanted to be close to the lake or close to the train uh, and in fashionable neighborhoods, but they didn't want to have the responsibility of a home.
2: The 1930 U.S. Census data from Biz and Tyler's apartment building, just three years after it was built, lists all 125 residents. The average age was about 30, and they were employed as clerks, stenographers, salesmen and women, bookkeepers, artists, musicians, teachers. Actually, people a lot like Biz and Tyler. And with two to four people living in each small apartment— The hidden Murphy bed and kitchenette allowed every inch of space to be used, while still maintaining a sense of 1930s decorum and propriety. But remember, while Biz's original question to Curious City was about a mystery closet, what she really wanted to understand was how and why Chicago apartments have changed over time. Her apartment told us about changing social norms. But it's usually economics or demographics that have the biggest impact on how homes change. So let's visit another neighborhood where that's the case.
4: Um, what we have here is, is one of these older stock buildings that were built in probably in the 1880s.
2: This is Jose Duarte, principal of Blackwood Group, a building and development company. He and his team are working on a home renovation in Bronzeville the near-Southside neighborhood that has seen several waves of transformation in the past 150 years. The building Duarte is working on has changed and changed again.
4: I would describe it as one of these old, big gray stones. You've got big arches on the front, um, limestone facades on the front, um, large windows, large openings, large doors, just very typical of these mansions that were built in this area in the you know late 1800s.
2: In the 1880s, the building was designed as a single-family home. By 1920, it was converted to apartments, and then sometime after World War II, to individual rooms. It was recently purchased and is now being converted back to a single-family home. Duarte takes us inside. Wow, these are gorgeous doorknobs.
4: So these were here before. The hardware is original. As we
2: walk through the spaces, I'm imagining all the different families that may have called this building uh, home over the years. And it turns out, according to the U.S. Census data, there have been many. This 1880s graystone was constructed for federal judge Jonas Hutchinson and his family. Just one family lived here for more than 35 years. Large stone homes with families that could afford live-in help were typical in the neighborhood. By 1920, the Hutchinsons had moved out, and the graystone was owned by Dr. John Carter and his wife, Dr. Lucretia Carter. African-American doctors born in Alabama. And something else had changed. Instead of one family here, the Carters divided up their building into three units, one family per floor. The reason? An increasing demand for housing in Bronzeville. That's because beginning in the early 20th century, tens of thousands of African-Americans came to Chicago as part of the Great Migration. And until the 1960s, African Americans were confined to just a few neighborhoods because of housing covenants and restrictions on lending. Jose Duarte says the former one-family mansion was renovated to accommodate more and more people.
4: I think the key was maximizing the number of sleeping quarters in each of those units. And you might have one main bathroom or one main kitchen in each level, but then you saw... These are the little cubbies that were a little kitchenette or another supplementary bathroom that was added afterwards. You definitely would have had 15 different sleeping quarters in there.
2: And what about now? What's the next chapter in this 135-year-old home? Bronzeville isn't as crowded as it used to be, and the neighborhood is becoming more affluent. An upper-middle-class African-American family, two adults, and two children will soon move in which means the building that started as a one-family mansion 135 years ago will be a one-family mansion again. But the layout is quite different than it was in the 1880s. Duarte shows me a space where the original family would have never set foot, a space only occupied by their live-in domestic help, the kitchen.
4: Basically, you're looking at just an open concept kitchen family room area. So It
2: has a range, sink, fridge, wall, a can... large island counter, but it also has a big hangout space same, off to one side.
4: You know, where you have a fireplace where he's going to probably have a, a little setup here for his gatherings. There's a space for a can...
2: couch and TV. The owners want to hang out with their guests in the kitchen. This is totally opposite of the 1880s when cooking spaces and the servants who worked there were out of the sight of guests. Upstairs, Duarte shows me the rest of the house.
4: Okay, so we're on on the second floor.
2: Six bedrooms and six bathrooms with a third floor dedicated to a master suite, a fully finished basement, a grand staircase, and really tall ceilings.
4: Two walk-in closets. Walk-in closets can never be big enough, ever.
2: Toward the end of our tour, I happened to duck my head into a tiny new closet. It's near that kitchen family room space, but tucked out of the way. I poked my head in to see what today's family would want to hide from their guests. Not cooking, not a bed, but spools of yellow cables. It's a closet entirely for hiding all the network cables that will provide Wi-Fi and allow just about every room to have a wall-mounted TV. Someday in the future, I think this little room for data is going to seem really quaint or probably mysterious, just like our mystery closet. Because just like Biz's Murphy bed, our needs at home change. When someone tours your home in another 125 years, what mysteries will they find? It's likely our homes will also leave historical imprints to tell future Chicagoans how we lived, about what we wanted and needed, could afford, and valued as a society.
3: Oh, the neighborhood is buzzing, and someone's face is red. But what is O'Reilly doing in the Murphy bed? His wife is in the kitchen, and it's time that he was fed. So what is O'Reilly doing in the Murphy bed? The
2: Murphy
0: bed. That was Jen Masongarb. She's currently Senior Project Leader at the Danish Architecture Center in Copenhagen. Biz and Tyler still live in the same building but have moved to a bigger apartment without a Murphy bed closet. The building did get hit by a tornado this past summer, and Biz wrote us, quote, our building was unscathed. It's a fortress. Now, for several weeks, we've been asking you to share your thoughts about the new school year with us. And now I'm joined by digital producer Mackenzie Crosson, who's been checking back in with some of you. Hey, Mackenzie. Hey, Jesse. So who do you have for us?
3: Well, I recently checked in with Evanston Elementary drama teacher Michael Rodriguez. You may remember he was one of the very first voices we featured in the podcast back before the school year even started. And he was feeling hopeful for what was to come.
1: I think this is going to be a really interesting opportunity for educators to really test the boundaries of what we are able to do. So I'm kind of looking forward to this school year in a weird way and maybe ask me again in two months how that excitement has actually manifested itself.
0: Okay, I'm just gonna guess maybe you took him up on that.
3: Yep, about two months later. And now that he's been in the midst of his remote learning routine, his outlook has gotten a bit more complicated.
1: It's it's so hard to pinpoint exactly (laughs) i feel right
3: because on the one hand there's still so much uncertainty about what this school year holds this spring he felt like he was finally getting the hang of things as a teacher then the pandemic hit and he had to adapt to remote teaching now he's working for two schools and he's waiting to learn if and when they might go back to in-person learning
1: it's so typical 2020 where it's like what's that you have plans what's that you want aspirations to do something here's this pandemic, I just kind of assume things are going to get worse. (laughs) And hopefully I'm wrong.
3: But on the other hand, his drama classes have also felt like a respite from the stress of the pandemic for himself and for his students.
1: And you could just see like (laughs) how one excited they're to see me. (laughs) Um, And how excited they are to see their friends doing these like crazy, let's be a tree and it's blowing in the wind and now there's a tornado and they're just like all wiggling and waggling. Um, It just feels good to like see their smiles.
3: He says that part of being a drama teacher is encouraging kids to have fun and explore their feelings. And he thinks kids really need that right now.
1: Sometimes drama class is, you know, it becomes a little bit drama therapy-y and sometimes it's drama therapy for me.
0: That was digital producer Mackenzie Crossan reporting. Mackenzie, thank you for letting us know how things are going for Michael Rodriguez.
3: You're welcome. And thanks to Michael and all of the teachers, students, parents, and guardians that have shared their experiences with us over the last couple of months. And a reminder, after the election, the weeks we've spent hearing from you about this school year are going to come together in a conversation with WBEZ's education reporters. They've been following this school year closely, from elementary school all the way to college, and we'll hear the stories of a special education teacher running class from her basement, two high school juniors preparing for higher education, and many more stories.
0: Great. I'm really looking forward to hearing from our amazing WBEZ education team. And I can also say Curious City has a bunch of new episodes coming up in November in our new podcast format. So get excited. We had reporting from Jen mason for this episode. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Jesse Dukes.
2: Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from Curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you.